If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In the 1580s, the remote Essex village of St Osseth was beset by increasing poverty and social tensions. And when a servant accused her neighbour of witchcraft, it sparked a crisis that engulfed the whole community. Professor Marion Gibson's new book charts the causes and consequences of the St Osseth case. And she spoke to Charlotte Hodgman about what it tells us about society in early modern England. She began by telling Charlotte more about the focus of her book. The story of the Witches of St Osseth is a comparatively little known story. It's one of those that, that turns up in lists of witch trials in Elizabethan England, but there's not actually been a detailed history written of it before. So this is the first one to really go into detail about what happened to the people who were accused of witchcraft, but also look at their accusers and the, the wider community around St Osseth and, and the other villages that get involved in the witch hunt. Is it a topic that you've been interested in for a while, this particular episode? I've been interested in this for about 25 years, which seems a very long time when you (laughs) say it like that, doesn't it? I first encountered this story when I was given... There's there's a news pamphlet um, written about the case in 1582 by the magistrate and somebody else working with him, and they wanted to publicise the case, and they wrote this... This 100-page, really quite long news account, so it was like an early newspaper, um, of what had happened. And I was given this to read when I was an undergraduate, and I just got really interested in it. I wanted to know why the people involved were saying what they did. You know, why some of them had confessed to witchcraft, because I didn't think that they were witches and that people could do witchcraft. And I wanted to know why their accusers were telling the stories that they did. You know, why they picked on these of their neighbours as being witches. And ever since then, I've really... I've wanted to tell this story. And this was about... This whole process of writing the book was about me going into the archives and looking for new evidence so I could tell the story in what I considered to be the proper way and proper detail. 
Is there much in the way of evidence on these trials? There's turned out to be a lot. And it's really interesting that historians haven't looked for it before, you know, including me, I haven't looked for it before. But when you do look in the archives, there's stuff in Essex Record Office, there's stuff in the National Archives at Kew. Um, there's stuff all over the place, actually. And it's manor records, it's records of ecclesiastical courts. So some of the people got in trouble with the, the church authorities before they got in trouble with the state authorities. Um, and there, there are uh, economic records, there are there are records relating to the kind of property they own, there are deeds, there are wills of some of the individuals. There was a whole lot of stuff about them. And in some cases, there were parish records, so I could learn more about their families and, and you know, what they'd been through during the course of their lives, which was particularly fascinating. It sounds like a, like a big jigsaw puzzle that was kind of just waiting to be put back together again. I mean, there's a huge range of like cast of characters involved in the story, aren't there? Perhaps if we start at the beginning and perhaps you could perhaps set the scene about what life for these people was like in 1582 when, you know, when this, this happened, what, what would life have been like in this little Essex kind of village? It was a really quite remote place. I mean, it had been a bit more prosperous in the past. There, there was a big religious foundation there. So the monks of, of the abbey, as it first was, and then the priory, would have had a duty to be charitable to the local people. They would have interacted with them daily. That would have felt like the centre of the village and indeed that whole area. And it was a big, wealthy abbey. However, come the dissolution of the monasteries, that was all shut down very suddenly. And the the grounds and, and the, the church and, and all the associated buildings were sold off to a family called the Darcy's, who proceeded to pull down quite a bit of it and build a big house on the site, as people often did after the the Reformation. So St Osith was becoming a place which had gone through a big crisis, was becoming poorer and various kinds of tensions were bubbling up there it seems to me which might be one of the important contexts for why people turn on each other and start accusing each other of witchcraft. Mm -hmm. So so who, who and where does this begin, this, this story? It starts with the Darcy household. So there was a woman called Grace Thurlow who was employed as a servant at, at Lord Darcy's big house. And she accused her neighbour, Ursley Kemp, uh, a woman with an illegitimate child, a woman who was probably poorer than Grace because she didn't have that kind of steady employment that Grace had at the big house. She accused her of witchcraft. So Grace turns on Ursley, and when Ursley is questioned, she in turn implicates other people. And it all flows from that. And it doesn't just involve people in this particular village, does it? It spreads out to, to other communities, which is kind of, again, really an interesting part of this story. Yeah, it does, it does. They are the witches of St Osith, but they're also the witches of several other places too. Yeah. So you mentioned that Ursley, she had an illegitimate son, she was a single mother. Is that a factor you think that played into accusations against her? I think it did, yes. I mean, her little boy Thomas was eight. So she, you know, she, she'd she been known for some time as somebody who had this illegitimate child. And illegitimacy was a was seen to be a problem in the Elizabethan period. It, it was something that drew you to the attention of the church authorities and your neighbours, and people would have made disapproving comments and would have treated you you and your child badly. 
So it was a difficult position for her to be in. And it was likely that she would also have economic troubles. There doesn't seem to have been a father to support the child. And she had to work. We know that, that she took in various kinds of work connected with the cloth industry. She, she dyed cloth, she spun um, wool and so on. I suspect she was living rather a hand-to-mouth existence. And she decided as, as part of her work that she could heal her neighbours. So she learned some spells that she could do to help them with things like lameness and bone ache. And that too, of course, started to draw her to the attention of, of the church and state authorities. So she was in a very difficult position for all sorts of reasons. Mm. And it was this kind of in trying to help heal somebody that she ended up actually being accused of witchcraft, wasn't it? Mm, That's right. So Grace Thurlow, the woman who accuses her, had asked Ursley for help. Grace's son, who was a much younger child than Ursley's son, he was ill and he had this peculiar illness where he seemed to be having some kind of, I don't know what it was really, his his body had become disfigured in some way. The, The description is that his hands were turned backwards. So whether that's some kind of, I don't know, convulsion or some sort of, of strange affliction. It's not entirely clear. But Grace is is worried about it and she calls Ursley in to see if she can do anything, believing that she has some kind of magical power. Um, and unfortunately, things go wrong. Davy does seem to get better, but Grace refuses to pay Ursley and then she falls out with her and she says things like, you've got a naughty name, which is a little bit stronger. Yeah, it's a much stronger word, naughty, than it is now. It does mean something quite wicked. And I suspect that naughtiness refers back to her sexual reputation and her her economic state, as well as Grace starting to think, hmm, she's a witch. Um, and then and then actually Grace's daughter dies, doesn't she? She does. So Grace is pregnant at the time that, that she calls Ursley in to, to help her little boy. And when she gives birth to, to the baby, a little girl, the child tragically falls out of her cradle and, and is injured and dies. And that also builds up Grace's suspicion that she's offended Ursley in some way and that Ursley has turned against her and is using witchcraft on her because Ursley had wanted to look after Grace during her pregnancy and she'd wanted to babysit the, the new baby when it came. And Grace had said no because she was starting to be suspicious about Ursley and then And of course, when the baby dies, this seems like this isn't a coincidence. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, and that's kind of where it all starts, doesn't it? It might be at this point quite a good idea just to set out the kind of role of witchcraft in this society, because to us it seems something kind of out of the ordinary, but actually witchcraft and, you know, misfortunes and things like that played was a real kind of integral part of people's lives, wasn't it? It was. People believed very strongly in the idea of magic and witchcraft. I mean, they lived in a very religious society. And as part of that, they were encouraged to think the world was full of angels and demons and God was in charge of everything, but yet the devil was always trying to subvert him. So it was really quite natural and logical for them to also think, well, you know, if if the priest has certain powers... Um, why shouldn't some other people have powers too? And maybe if there are God's good people on the one side, amongst us also there are the devil's bad people. So witchcraft accusations were quite common and a lot of people seem to believe they had magical power themselves. And interestingly, there was a kind of like a network of, of cunning women in this area. What surprised me was that I would have thought that these women themselves could have been um, accused and they perhaps would have stuck together more but actually they were quite happy to sort of turn on Ursley weren't they? They were that's one of the things I found most surprising about the case and and it struck me that I hadn't really noticed that when I was reading the original account there were all these people so cunning people as they called themselves you know wise women practitioners of witchcraft and magic and healing and they did turn on each other I think they were very competitive with each other actually. Another interesting figure in this story is Brian Darcy, uh, the magistrate. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about him and, and his role? Because he seems to take up this, this whole case with quite a lot of enthusiasm. <laughs> Brian Darcy's a fascinating figure, isn't he? He's the one who was responsible for producing that news pamphlet that I talked about. And he's really doing it as a, as a sort of publicity stunt for himself. So he has to, when, when somebody's suspected of witchcraft in the village, you would the accuser would go to the magistrate and the magistrate will be expected to question them. So from that point of view, he's doing his job. But he does seem to do it with enormous excitement, doesn't he? And as things go on, we realise that he's he's manipulating the suspects. He's lying to them. He's promising them favour. He's threatening and bullying them. And he's questioning their, their little children, which he's not really supposed to do. It does seem that he wanted to become a witch finder, that he thought there was a lot of witchcraft going on in what he considered to be his village. And he wanted to do something about it. Mm. Um, we mentioned earlier that Ursley then incriminates other women and then they in turn incriminate other women and eventually I think is, is it 16 people I think were accused. Was that normal? Was that common for people to sort of turn on their neighbours and say well actually so and so sent this demon off to you know to do this 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 ill yes it was it's a depressing thing isn't it but at the same time it's quite understandable when people feel that they are under threat sometimes they look for other people to blame and if they all believed that witchcraft and magic was possible it would have been quite easy for them to think you know well I'm being accused of this but my neighbor she said some cross words to me and you know then my child fell ill so of course she must be a witch 
So you can see why they do it, but it does spread the accusations across that whole part of, of Essex to the villages beyond St. Joseph. Yeah. Had this area seen any other trials, perhaps not as big as this, but had it got kind of history in this, this kind of area? It has. It was quite common for witches to be tried in Essex. So throughout the 1560s and 1570s, there are a couple of cases that also lead to news accounts. And then there are other ones that don't get reported, but turn up in the, the court records of the time. Essex was a place where a lot of people were accused of witchcraft. Yeah. So Ursley is taken to the magistrate. She's she's questioned by him. She actually ends up confessing, doesn't she, to to having four familiars, I suppose you'd call them. Um, do we know, was she tortured into this? Was she kind of promised something that then never happened, you know, her freedom in return for a, for a confession? What, what do we know about this? Yes, it's more along the lines of manipulation and pressure than it is torture. Torture was formally banned. That didn't stop people doing unpleasant things to witchcraft suspects. But we don't have any evidence that Brian Darcy did that. He does, however, report a number of practices that caused other people to criticise him after the trial. So leading questions where he, he assumes that the person is guilty and says, well, you did do this, didn't you? And the person is just required to say yes. So he does that, but also he threatens and bullies Ursley and some of the other suspects. And he records this because he actually thinks it's praiseworthy. He does believe these people are witches. And he thinks what he's doing is being very clever and tricking them into confessing. But of course, actually what he's doing is as a powerful very wealthy, very visible man in this community with links to the Lord Darcy, um, who is his relative and links to the big house and his own big house in St. Joseph. He's putting, he's leaning all that cultural pressure onto these women who have hardly any resources, you know, not well respected by their community in some cases and really have little option but to confess. And they break down and he describes how they cry and they confess. He He's proud of breaking them in that way because he he thinks it's the right thing to do. I mean, it's hard to imagine how terrifying this must have been for the, for those women brought to this big house, you know, put under under trial, probably aware of what had happened to other women, you know, who'd, who'd been accused. What happened to them once they were there? How did the trial kind of take place? So they'd be questioned by, by Brian and he records, you know, he has a clerk present with him and they record what, the, they record the statement basically, what the, the suspect has said and they write down what the accusers have said. And then they ship them all off to, to the, the big criminal court, which happens, in this case, happens in March, in the spring, and happens in the county town or another town that's nominated by the national authorities for, for the criminal court to take place. And they're put in a cart and they're taken off, in this case, to Colchester and thrown into the, the castle dungeons and left to await the trial. What happens at the trial? Are they they all found guilty? They're not, no, but in some cases, even though they're not found guilty, their stories don't end well. There, there were a number of things that could happen to you even if you weren't found guilty. You know, you could be continued on in prison because you couldn't pay your jail fees. You had to pay for the food that you'd eat while you were in jail and for the, for the keeping of you, basically. And if you couldn't do that, there was a very good chance you'd stay in jail for a while. That could happen to people. Jails were dangerous places. So some of the people who were, were not found guilty immediately actually died subsequently in prison of, of fever. There were all sorts of things that could happen to you. And in one case, uh, one of the women remains in jail for six years. We're not really sure why. That was hugely unusual. 
and and she's only released in 1588. Some of them go home, and from that point of view, it's it's not a misery fest. It it is a story where some people actually do eventually get their freedom back and and they do get the better of the system. I don't suppose their lives were ideal afterwards, but they they did get away. However, two of the women were hanged. So people died because of this and they died both by, by hanging, by execution, but also subsequently of other causes. Yeah. You can't help but think of Ursus' little boy who actually kind of played a role in really um, sealing his mother's fate. Was it normal for children to be questioned and for their statements to be taken so seriously? Because he he supported this kind of idea that his mother had familiars that she sent out to, to do evil things. He did, and you can see why a small child would be intimidated and, and indeed sort of allured into telling those kind of stories. You know, if they believe that witches have familiars, well, why not tell a story about them? Children have this rich fantasy world, don't they? So, yeah, he and several other children of some of the other suspects really were in part responsible for getting their parents killed. And you do wonder what happened to them. Yes, I don't know. I did look because, like you, I wanted to know, and I wanted to know everything about these people and at least give them some some dignity, you know, some justice after all these years. But I couldn't find what happened to Thomas or the other children who'd given evidence against their parents and their, their friends. No, it's very, yeah, very, very sad. Did you find any patterns in the accusations um, across the 16 individuals? I mean, what, one of them was actually a man, wasn't he? Um, one of the accused. Yeah, the major pattern is about the gender of the the accused. Almost all of them are women. And it's really important to keep saying that, I think. You know, it's sometimes taken as a commonplace, oh, you know, yes, they were women, but they they were mostly women and in very large proportions too. So, yes, there is only one male suspect. And he is the husband of, of one of the accused women. So he, you feel like he's been drawn in because of his wife, really. They're looking primarily for women to accuse. And most of them are poorer people, too. Some of them are a little bit wealthier. You know, some of them seem to have their own farms and, and they describe all the things that, that they they do there. So they tell us a whole lot of things about their lives as, as farmers' wives in this time. But most of them seem to be poor women, women who are kind of scraping along from one small job to another, not really earning a lot. Maybe they have a, a, a difficult relationship with their community in the first place, certainly like Ursley, a number of them have illegitimate children. So there, there is a profile to the accused witch, yes, and, and it's a woman who has been in some trouble with her community and is not among the richest of, of her neighbours. Yeah, and a lot of the accusations seem to kind of revolve around asking for charity and perhaps being refused and then being accused at this time was this you know asking for charity was that seen as a bad thing was that something that that you know might lead you to get accused of being a witch it goes back to where we started really you know in the, in the monastic days um no it wasn't really such a bad thing it was perfectly okay to, to go up to the, the the local monastery or nunnery or you know, whatever you had in your village and explain that you needed some food or you you needed some money but after the reformation it does become more difficult for for people to know where to go with these requests you know the family who've built the big house don't have the same responsibility to the community so you can ask you can ask your neighbors as well but it doesn't feel like there's the same obligation to help poor people so it was seen as something that was troublesome you know they were regarded as, as troublesome beggars rather than as neighbors who were in distress it really is it's a very sad story of people turning on each other people 
treating each other with really quite a lot of callousness and, and inhumanity, people making tragic mistakes. And it just spirals and spirals until these poor women are, are finally carted off to prison. Are there kind of parallels in this particular case with other witch trials from the time? There are some parallels with other witch trials from the time, yes. I mean, the the key thing is that most of the accused are women, but also that idea of the profile of the accused, which is being a poor person, shows up an awful lot in the trials in this period. In some cases, there seem to have been some religious tensions too, although they're harder to get at. It's much easier to guess at the, the economic circumstances involved than it is the religious ones. But Essex was a place where Puritanism was on the rise, for example, and that might have played a part in some of these accusations. Because obviously when you think of Essex, you think of the witch finder general. So there was definitely kind of a history around around kind of witch finding. And, and do you think Brian was a kind of a would-be witch finder general and he wanted to be kind of seen in that kind of role? Yes, I do. I do think that. I think he's a sort of proto-Matthew Hopkins, the, the witch finder general who comes along in the, the 1640s. And a matter of fact, I'm working with with several other folk on uh, a project about Matthew Hopkins at the moment. So we're trying to put together a, a really full account of that case. And I do see Brian as an early example of that kind of Essex witch finder. Yeah. What kind of was it for you when you started delving into the, the evidence? What kind of were some of the most surprising things that you, you discovered about this case? First thing was just how much we could know if we looked. That was a real surprise. I did it because I it was a speculative thing, really. I wanted to see what records there were and I'd always wanted to know who these people were. So I thought, why not look? And I was astonished how much you could reconstruct of the lives of these really very ordinary people, you know, people who were illiterate, people who have very little cultural capital, social power. But they left these records behind of themselves, nevertheless. That was the first surprise. And then some of the other things were about what kind of people they were. I'd expected them to be poorer women on the whole, but I did find an awful lot of healers, an awful lot of cunning people, which I wasn't necessarily looking for. You know, it's been thought by historians for some time that there may be a stereotype of, oh, the midwife witch or the, the cunning person witch or the healer witch you know, and and people have suggested that actually being an early modern medical practitioner was not really a a straightforward high road to being accused of witchcraft. And it wasn't. It's not that simple. But I did find an awful lot of these people being accused. And I found offhand references, you know, to people having magical skills, which I didn't necessarily expect. I think that was a really magical society. And I hadn't perhaps anticipated just how much magic suffused everything that these people did. Yeah, because some of the accusations that they range from kind of murder, you know, right down to, you know, making your cow sick. So, like you say, it does show you how magic could affect everything. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah, from the most serious things of of life and death, right the way through to, to petty little quarrels over things that seem quite small to us. Magic was everywhere. Yeah, definitely. Being a cunning person um, at this time, how how frequently were these people consulted? So, you know, if somebody fell sick, would your first port of call have been somebody like that to come and help kind of get rid of whatever was going on? Yes, it would. I mean, if you, you came from a wealthier family, you'd go to a physician. But of course, if you couldn't afford the fees of doctors, yeah, you went to your neighbour, you you know, you went to mother so-and-so down the road who perhaps helped your community with with births and, and you know, laying out the dead and, and treating the 
sick and dressing wounds and stuff like that, you'd probably go to that person because you'd believe that there was a magical component to what they did. And so you'd think right away, well, mother so-and-so can probably help me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Is there anything else to be found out, do you think, about this case? Do you think you kind of exhausted all the kind of avenues of of research? I wouldn't be a bit surprised if there was something still out there. (laughs) The more history I do, the more I realise there's other stuff out there always. It would be nice if some more sources turned up, wouldn't it? Um, St Osith has lost some of its records and maybe they'll turn up one day, you never know. Um, But, yeah, I think generally there's a lot more to be found out about English witches, um, particularly from the Elizabethan and Jacobean period, which is the bit I'm really interested in, but also from the Civil War, which I've become interested in looking for Matthew Hopkins and and his, um, his witches. So I think there's loads more to find. That was Marion Gibson. Marion's book, The Witches of St Osseth, Persecution, Betrayal and Murder in Elizabethan England, is out now, published by Cambridge University Press. And if you're interested in witchcraft, then make sure to check out our podcast series on the Salem Witch Trials. You can find that by searching for Salem in your podcast feeds. And you'll also hear a familiar voice because today's guest, Marion Gibson, is one of our experts. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. Thank you.